Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode comes with the welcome support of Malby and Greek, the number one delicatessen and supplier of Greek food and drinks in London and in UK. So if you're fasting for Easter Lent, then you are in luck. Malpi and Greek has an amazing range of Lenten delicacies, so you can keep up with the desert monks. I have tried the Athanasopoulos plum olives, which are delicious, naturally fermented, with no chemicals and no process to make the, the whole maturing of the olives quicker. And they're massive and meaty and done with the same way since... Um, 3000 BCE. And you can have your olives with the amazing barley rusks kuluri from Saint Nectarius in Crete. Amazing double baked barley bread called dakos, which is a staple of uh, all the monks and all the travelers in Byzantine Empire from the Byzantine times and in today's uh, Greek islands. Another amazing product, uh, Lenten and delicious is the rock samphire from the Ionian Sea, which is preserved in a mild brine. Delicious, vegan, Lenten, and goes really well with your dacos and your olives. Perfect meze for a monastic monk. Brilliant pulses, also from the Greek islands, are the Sandorini PDO fava, which is an amazing product on its own and makes fantastic um, fava puree which can um, go with caramelized onions, uh, capers, rocks on fire, brilliant meze. And of course, uh, you have uh, the Dicotylon chickpeas, which are from uh, the high altitude of Feneos in uh, Peloponnese. Amazing chickpeas and a brilliant ancient pulse, which has been used from all the monks as a main staple food. Enjoy your fantastic Greek Lenten products and you can buy them online from Malby and Greek, or you can visit the shop in Bermondsey, South London, Arts 17, Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SE16 4ET. And for you dear listeners, there's a fantastic discount of 15% if you use online the discount code DELICIOUS. Malby and Greek, your one-stop shop for your Greek fix. There is an incredible photo from 1858, I believe it is, by a photographer called Dimitrios Constantinou. It's a photo of uh, the temple of the Olympian Zeus in Athens. Remember, that mid-19th century, Athens is newly liberated uh, from the Ottoman Empire. And Greece, of course, Athens is a new capital. And, yeah, of course, they try to connect with the ancient past. And in this photo, in these massive columns of the ruins of, um, of the Temple of Zeus, on the very top is a very weird, um, almost out-of-place um, construction. And this is where a monk used to live, believe it or not. Uh, this kind of monks are called stilite, and they used to live in columns, usually ancient ruins or rocks and stuff like this, on top of them. 
And that got me thinking, how do you get food? How do you eat? How do you go up and down there? And you get your provisions. So that was um, my starting point for today's podcast, for today's episode. And it had me thinking, really. It made me think um, of the monks and the hermits. And of course, obviously, their lifestyle, the lifestyle choices, the self-sacrifices, and so on. Which is um, uh, always very interesting subject. So yeah, this um, this photo took me down uh, a rabbit hole about um, monks and about ascetic people and monasteries and the food they ate and um, of course fasting and um, all that really. And uh, since it's Easter uh, very soon, I was also thinking about um, the Easter cuisine, the Easter. Lent, which um, I've talked before on this uh, podcast about the Easter cuisine and the Easter uh, fasting period before the Easter Sunday. So the whole thing started uh, evolving around that and uh, trying to find out how did we start fasting in Christian religion and why did we fast and why did uh, the monks uh, went to live um, out in the desert in this ascetic life. And of course, yeah, our Lenten period and our food of uh, of that fasting period resembles a lot of what uh, the monks ate out in the desert. So yeah, everything was um, starting revolving in my head and making um, all kinds of strange connections. And um, yeah, that's how today's episode uh, came about. And of course, um, yeah, how... As I explained to this podcast before about uh, the Eastern Lent, how did um, the Orthodox Lent, uh, why is this different uh, from uh, the Lent here in UK, for example? And yeah, I found all sorts of interesting stuff and uh, facts about uh, monks and medieval cuisine and how things evolved around Europe after after the monastic um, life, the monastic lifestyle spread around Europe. Who were these first monks? How they survived? How did all begin? Constantine, with his army, was marching. When he looked up to the sun and saw a cross of light above it, and with it the Greek words and Teutonica. The literal meaning of the phrase in Greek is, in this sign, conquer. At first, he was unsure of the meaning of the apparition, but in the following night, he had a dream in which Christ explained to him that he should use the sign against his enemies. So the military standard used by Constantine in his later wars against Licinius showed the Cairo sign. In the night, before the battle, Constantine commanded in a dream to delineate the heavenly sign on the shields of his soldiers. He followed the commands of his dream and marked the shields with a sign denoting Christ. Maxentius chose to make his stand in front of the Milvian Bridge, a stone bridge that carries the Via Flaminia road across the Tiber River into Rome. Holding it, it was crucial if he was to keep his rival out of Rome where the Senate would surely favour whoever held the city. As Maxentius had probably partially destroyed the bridge during his preparations for a siege, he had a wooden or a pontoon bridge constructed to get his army across the river. The sources vary here as to the nature of the bridge being central to the events of the battle. Zosimus, a historian of the time, mentions it vaguely as being constructed in two parts connected by iron fastenings, while others indicate that it was a pontoon bridge. Sources are also unclear as to whether the bridge was deliberately constructed as a collapsible trap for Constantine's forces or not. So the next day, the two armies clashed, and Constantine won a decisive victory. The dispositions of Maxentius may have been faulty, as his troops seem to have been arrayed with the river Tiber at their backs, but also very close to them giving them little space to allow regrouping in the event of their formation being forced um, to give ground. 
Constantine, he was already famous and well-known as a skillful general. He first launched uh, his cavalry against uh, the one of Maxentius and broke them. Then Constantine's infantry advanced. Most of Maxentius' troops fought well, but they began to be pushed back towards the Tiber. Maxentius then decided to order a retreat, intending to make another stand at Rome itself. However, there was only one escape route, and this was via the bridge. Constantine's men inflicted heavy losses on the retreating army. Finally, the temporary bridge set up alongside the Milvian Bridge, over which many of the Maxentian troops were escaping, collapsed. And those stranded on the north bank of the Tiber were either taken prisoner or killed. Maxentius's Praetorian Guard, who had originally acclaimed him Emperor, seemed to have made a stubborn stand on the northern bank of the river. In despair of pardon, they covered with their bodies the place, which they had chosen for combat. Maxentius was among the dead, having drowned in the river while trying to swim across it in an attempt to escape. Lactanius describes the death of Maxentius in the following manner. The bridge in his rear was broken down. At sight of that, the battle grew hotter. The hand of the Lord prevailed, and the forces of Maxentius were routed. He fled towards the broken bridge, but by the multitude pressing on him, he was driven headlong into the Tiber. Constantine's victory gave him total control of the Western Roman Empire, paving the way for Christianity to become the dominant religion for the Roman Empire, and ultimately for Europe. The following year, 313 CE, Constantine Licinius issued the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity an officially recognized and tolerated religion in the Roman Empire. The interesting thing about the battle here, about the sign before the battle, the Entutonica, that uh, Constantine saw forming in the sun, I think we can assume nowadays that he probably saw a vision, we can see it, we can um, interpret it in a solar context, uh, basically as a solar halo phenomenon called the sun dog. And uh, yeah, I guess that's... um, that's something we can um, think he might saw as a vision of uh, the cross above the sun. Hello! My name is Thomas Dinas, and this is the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Welcome back to another archaeogastronomical adventure. And this time, we are going to the deserts of the Middle East and Egypt, where we explore the foods and diet of the first monastic orders and the monks who lived in splendid isolation in this harsh desert environment. So that was a starting point of uh, Christianity blossoming across the Roman Empire and spreading throughout Europe. But the heart and the, the beginnings of uh, Christianity all started uh, down in the Middle East, what is today Egypt, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Israel, uh, these uh, uh, core countries, this area. And um, through, through these places, we'll check the life of Christian monks through their food and their eating and their fasting and will trace the evolution of Christianity and its development from the beginning uh, until the Middle Ages. But first, um, let's um, take some examples of, um, of monks and um, anchorites and ascetics and uh, their lifestyle. There's one um, hairy anchorite, Onufrios, a solitary monk in the Sinai Desert, who is reputed to have lived for most of his adult life on nothing but dates. Dates being um, a fruit that's very well suited and adaptable on the climate of um, the Middle East, dry and near desert-like. And a lot of oases and a lot of places have uh, plenty of date trees around there. So yeah, and a very sweet and very calorie-heavy uh, food. Another example is Hilarion, which, uh, like Onufrius, an early Christian, who set himself to follow a diet consisting of the same kind of food. First, barley bread, 
then lentils, then soup, for years at a time, without alteration. The 12th century monk Bernard of Clairvaux was so indifferent to what he ingested that his monks watched him drink from a cup filled with olive oil, under the impression that it was water, without apparently noticing the difference. A degree of practical abstinence from food and drink was a consequence of a set of ideals about the body and how to regulate it as a part of a holy life. In the monastery of St. George Josiba, the ancient custom of the monastery was to reserve a portion of festival food for pilgrims and travelers who might pass by. Feeding wayfarers was also a sacred rule of hospitality among the Greeks going back to Homeric times. This simple food is connected to the practicalities of living in such a monastery. Could anything possibly grow in such a parched landscape? Did all their supplies had to be brought in from outside? The first Christian monks appear in the sources in the 3rd century, so a few years before Constantine. Fragments of papyrus from Egypt record the existence of men listed as monachi, or otherwise monks, in tax registers. The fact that they were known and could be counted suggests that they lived in or near settled habitations rather than in the desert. Despite these uh, tantalizing glimpses of the earliest monks, monasticism is really a creation of the 4th century. In order to understand how and why it emerged, uh, we must first examine how Christianity itself developed in this period, the era in which it emerged from the darkness to dominate cultural life in the empire. The great persecution which have been instituted to eradicate Christianity, ended in the early years of the 4th century, when uh, the Emperor Diocletian realized it was an impossible task. A few years later, as we've seen with Constantine, which from an obscure general in Britain, he became Caesar, so second in command of the Roman Empire, and then 312 uh, CE, he won at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, so he was crowned Emperor of the Western Empire, And then a few years later, he became the emperor of uh, the whole Roman Empire. And the rest, as they say, is history. So he was the one who made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Of course, it's not surprising in the path that um, things took. There's nothing inherently surprising about this. In the the early 4th century, there was about, perhaps about 10% of of the population of the Roman Empire that they were Christians. It was a significant amount. It was religion as any other religion. It was regarded by most Roman citizens simply one of a number of ways of worshipping uh, the deities, the divine. Religion in late Roman Empire was uh, highly syncretistic and many people thought that the divine could be worshipped in a number of different uh, guises and according to local traditions, of course. Moreover, monotheism was not confined in Christians or Jews. It was a serious philosophical position held by Neoplatonists and others. However, Christianity had some features that distinguished it from uh, other cults uh, that had emerged um, from obscure corners of the empire. One of these, as it transpired over the course of the next few centuries, was a spectacular intellectual adaptability. To an outsider, though, Christian practices and ethics may have looked very similar to those of a number of other religion cults and philosophical affiliations. Christian ethics, including views about the body, personal conduct, self-control and regulation of one's bodily appetites, were certainly neither um, original, uh, sprung out of uh, the mind of uh, early Christians, or unique. They were derived from Jewish ethical teachings and informed by by both Neoplatonic and uh, Stoical philosophical traditions. In the 320s, after, as we said, so after defeating the, the Eastern Emperor Licinius and making himself sole ruler of the Roman world, Constantine became increasingly partial towards the Christian Church. He founded a new imperial capital, named after himself, which we all know as Constantinople in the East, where the, the old city of Byzantium was once stood. Uh, unlike Rome, which was heavily dominated by a senatorial aristocracy that was largely traditional in its religious outlook, the new city was blatantly and openly Christian. 
Christian bishops and advisors became the new political class of the empire. The dangers to the faith itself, however, were obvious. Naturally, conversion to the favored religion increased exponentially, especially in the eastern half of the empire, as the benefits and rewards of being Christian became more obvious. But when there was no longer any need for Christians to resist to to the state authorities, when indeed Christianity became increasingly identified with the state itself, part of what made Christians distinctive as a grouping within the society disappeared. Christians no longer had to be revolutionaries who despised the world in which they lived and kept their eyes firmly fixed uh, on the afterlife. In such circumstances, some Christian leaders worried that the discipline of the faith would be undermined. Monks, moreover than anything else, maintained this link by living lives of sacrifice. Just as the martyrs had given their lives in a single, final gesture of rejection of worldly values, so monks lived as witnesses to the same principle of rejection. They gave up everything when they embarked on the monastic life. Comfort, ease, political and social status, the enjoyment of everything the world had to offer. Of course, all that included renouncing uh, their sexual appetites and also their physical appetites in preference for a life of uh, poverty, chastity and a perpetual worship of the divine, of God. So in that age in which uh, martyrdom was no longer a fact of life, Christians weren't under, under any threat now. This was the truly virtuous uh, way to give, to sacrifice yourself. So the monks, then there was the successors, we can see them as the successors of the martyrs. The traditional view is that the first monks, both solitary and communal, emerged in Egypt in the 3rd century, at about the same time, but quite independently from each other. And um, this view derives largely from uh, one of the most influential pieces of writing of the late Roman period, indeed of Christian history in general, which is uh, the life of Antony. Antony the Great, one of the first, um, not the first, but the most famous of the monks and saints. The author of, uh, of the book was a 4th century bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. His name was Athanasius. The story told in this uh, short work established uh, most of the features that were to become standard attributes of solitary holy men and women for centuries. Although Athanasius was a Greek speaker and Alexandria was a largely Greek-speaking city, and he wrote in Greek. The life of Antony was translated into Latin in his own lifetime and quickly into other languages as well. It was a very popular book, basically. This was a sign both of how influential it had become only a few years after its initial launch, and also how important Athanasius um, saw saw this as a means of spreading the message he wanted to convey in, um, in, in the work, in the book itself. For Athanasius, uh, this uh, biography was regarded as the perfect vehicle for his message. And Antony, the monk, the saint, though probably a real enough historical figure, mirrored uh, his views of how monks should live. And although a short work, it is far from being a straightforward narrative of Antony's life. In fact, relatively few details of how Antony spent uh, his supposed 105 years are provided. We first encounter Antony at the age of 18, as a newly orphaned uh, devout Christian from Lower Egypt, a young man of considerable means but with a younger sister to support. Convinced that the best way to follow the teachings of Jesus was to give up his possessions, Antony sold his land and the agricultural estate he had been given by his parents, and all his portable property, and packed his young sister off to be looked after by by a group of uh, Christian women devoted to a life of uh, virginity, in other words, uh, nuns. He then went off himself to study the monastic life by seeking out virtuous men who practice asceticism in order to devote themselves to God. It is clear from the context that there were already monks in the most heavily populated and fertile part of Egypt, that some lived alone and others in associations or groups, that monks might be men or women and that they might live near or in villages and towns, or at some more remote distance from them. Egyptian society in the late Roman period clung to the Nile River, 
As the ancient proverb said, Egypt was the gift of the Nile. Its prosperity came from the fertility of the land in the narrow strip watered by the Nile, and especially from the delta created by the great river, which had several tributaries on its uh, northern end, where it met the Mediterranean Sea. It was the flooding of the Nile every summer that caused the river to burst its banks and spread itself over the surrounding countryside that made this region so fertile. Antony appears to have spent several years living among or alongside um, monks in various locations on the edge of the desert in Lower Egypt. What marked him out as a different one from his contemporaries and predecessors was his willingness to penetrate the Ainer Desert. In other words, to cut himself off from all human contact for years at a time. Antony maintained a very strict ascetic diet. He ate only bread, salt and water, and never meat or wine. He ate at most only once a day, and sometimes fasted through two or four days. For Antony, at least, in Athanasius' telling of his story, the job of the monk was to confront the devil and his attendant demons. This might be done anywhere, but one was more likely to encounter the devil by drawing attention to oneself, and this Antony did by inhabiting tomb chambers and deserted fortresses alone in the desert. Antony's solitude was made it impossible for him to secure help from any human agency. He was reliant only on his own faith and inner strength. The torments, described by Athanasius in the book, read to us today like inner psychological conflicts, visions of horrible creatures, the fear of being alone in the desert, uncertainty, whether he had sufficient food to survive. To Athanasius' readers, almost 2,000 years ago, the appearance of demons or other creatures in dreams was normal. Indeed, it was a mark of spiritual distinction to be subject to such uh, visitations. Only special people with special powers tended to have visions. Contrast this Constantine's vision, visions at the Milvian Bridge before the battle, which was the one side of the coin, and Antony's demons and visions as the other side of the coin. Skiti is one of the three early Christian monastic centers located in the Nitrian Desert of the northwestern Nile Delta. The other two monastic centers are Nitria and Kelia. Skitis, now called Wadi el-Natrun, is the best known today because of its ancient monasteries still remain in use, unlike Nitria and Kelia, which they only have archaeological remains. Dioscorus, one of the monks of Skiti, encountered in the sayings of the fathers, set himself a new ascetic challenge every year. One year he undertook only to eat raw food, another year not to eat fruit, though he was very fond of, of them, and so on. Abba Sisos of Thebes would eat either bread or vegetables, but not both at the same meal. Macarius, the doyen of skit monks, copied what he had heard from the practice of the monks of the Pahomius monastery in Tabenesi to eat only raw food in Lent, but he extended this for a period of seven years without a break. He was also frugal about eating fruit. One year he had a yearning for the first grapes from the harvest, but when someone sent a bunch to him, he sent them on to another monk rather than give way to his desire. Abba Arsenius, however, ate a tiny quantity of fresh fruit as soon as it ripened on the trees, so as to be able to give thanks to God for the goodness of the creation. An unnamed monk in Palladius' Lozaic history, who suffered from extreme digestive disorder, was given a dish of stewed prunes to alleviate it. He refused on the grounds that it would break his vow of uh, fasting on bread and water alone which is actually the raisin probably that gave him at the first place the, the disorder, but that was his um, choice. Another Egyptian monk named Isaiah was visited in the desert of Skit by another monk. He offered him some food and a saucepan of lentils on the fire, but just as the water was starting to boil, he removed the pan, saying that simply to see the fire cooking the lentils should be sustenance enough for them. As we see, there is an element of competition in some of these stories, who can be the best uh, fasting monk. Macarius was inspired by example of a monk who ate only a pound of bread a day, 
so Macarius would break his own bread, ration, into pieces and keep it in a jar with a narrow neck. He then ate daily only the pieces that he could bring up in a single handful. Another skitty monk, Isaiah, was criticized for adding water and salt to his food on the grounds that this created a sauce which was unnecessarily complicating the basic ingredients. Eating raw as opposed to uncooked food was regarded as particularly virtuous by some monks. There were two ethical aspects to the ideal. First, the desire to spend no longer than the absolute minimum on the preparation of food, so as to preserve the state of indifference to it. And second, the belief that food in its original state most closely resembled what Adam and Eve ate in paradise, in in the Garden of Eden. So fruits that could be simply picked from the trees were perfect, though Sabbath, one other monk, renounced apples, which he loved, in memory of the fruit that had first caused uh, humans to sin. But gathering and eating food from the wild was also a necessity for some solitaries, especially if they chose to settle in areas where there was no settled habitation. Eating wild plants and roots may sometimes have been a necessity, but it developed into a recognizable part of the monastic tradition. A monk named Apollo was typical of the earlier generation of hermits, eating only plants that uh, sprang up naturally from the soil, and he eschewed bread, beans, and lentils. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. But in the semi-desert of Syria and Palestine, it was always possible to find wild roots like one called Melagria or a variety of edible leaves. Thus, when Ephthemius and Theoctistus first settled in a cave in the Judean desert, they fed off the plants that happened to grow there. Later, in retreat from the Kinobium near the Dead Sea, which Kinobium is a communal monastery type of thing. So later, Ephthemius resorted once again to eating meloa, a shrubby plant that grows commonly near riverbanks in the region. Sabas, when he settled in his cave in the Wadi Kidron, was joined by other solitaries and grazers. Grazers, gatherers, uh, monks that they were gathering uh, wild herbs and plants. And according to Cyril of Scythopolis, Sabas himself recalled living of Melagria with Ephthemius during Lent. So he seems to have adopted the practice from his own mentor. For when he was later found wandering around the shores of the Dead Sea by himself during Lent, his pouch was full of melagria and reed hearts. Melagria, I think it's been identified nowadays as the Asphodelus microcarpus, which is a shrub uh, with tough and inedible leaves, commonly found 
in the Judean desert, of course, and uh, indigenous to Syria and Palestine. Although the leaves cannot be eaten, the roots are edible and they can be used as a substitute for onions and garlic when boiled or sauteed. Alternatively, the gum resin from the roots can be used uh, to flavor dishes of beans or herbs. So when Sabas lived in solitude in the Judean desert, his food bag apparently contained only asphodel and reed hearts, as well as a small trowel used for digging the asphodel out of the ground. Meloa, also known as salt bush, is a form of mallow. Its leaves and roots are both edible. Cyril of Scythopolis, in his Life of Ephemius, describes monks at um, the monastery washing meloa leaves that they have gathered. So clearly, it was a plant that w- it was eaten by settled monks. Most pertinent to the monks of the Near East is the reed, the plant that along with melagria was Saba's staple diet during his Lenten wanderings. Saba's evidently something of a connoisseur, even in this extreme situation, collected and saved the hearts of the reed. In fact, all parts of the reed, which is a, a species of grass that can grow up to 12 feet in places, are edible, either raw or cooked. The stems are best eaten before the flower in early summer, either boiled or ground into a kind of flour and mixed with water to make a form of bread. Since uh, Sabas took no cooking equipment with him, he must have simply chewed the raw stems and saved the hearts. Because his fast occurred in Lent, before the flowering season, he would have been able to enjoy the reeds at their best. However, Cyril of Scythopolis also reports an occasion when Sabas was able, through miracle, of course, to eat raw squeals, a plant which is normally considered inedible without, um, without long cooking. Okay, let's see our first recipe of the day. A hermit's stew. Collect a large bunch of mixed leaves and shoots of various kinds. For example, dandelion, wild asparagus, alexanders, wild several, nettles. Clean them carefully and trim off excess stalks. You should end up with enough shoots and leaves about 4 inches in length. Heat some olive oil in a wide bottom saucepan and add a finely chopped onion. When this is translucent, throw in your herbs and mix them around until they are coated with the oil. Then add about half a pint of water and a tablespoon of mild vinegar. Bring to the boil and simmer. Meanwhile, crush two bulbs of garlic and a half teaspoon of black peppercorns in a mortar. Add a few chopped almonds or pine nuts and a small handful of parsley or coriander. Check that the leaves and shoots in your stew are tender. The length of time this will take will vary depending on the quantity and the varieties of the leaves in your pot. Add salt and crust and the crust mixture of your, of your mortar. Eat with flatbread or thicken the, the soup, the stew with uh, breadcrumbs. The history of monasticism is characterized by a fierce and passionate abandonment of uh, the ordinary life, the ordinary comforts of life, and by the insistence that only in such an abandonment can virtue lie. Among such comforts, the most obvious and striking are food and drink. Clearly, ascetics who followed this ideal understood that eating and drinking was necessary, but they thought that virtue lay in treating it in purely as a necessity, rather than something capable of giving pleasure. The purpose of food and drink was simply to sustain life so that spiritual perfection could be sought without consideration of the body's desires. The principle is explained in a metaphor by one of the most colorful uh, of the Desert Fathers, John the Dwarf. A king who wants to take possession of an enemy's city begins by cutting off the water and the food. So, his enemies dying of hunger submit to him. It is the same with the passions of the flesh. If a man goes about fasting and hungry, the enemies of his soul grow weak. In order to comprehend how this understanding of the moral value of fasting emerged, it is useful to first examine the roots of the ethical tradition of early Christian asceticism. Throughout monastic literature, especially that of the Desert Fathers, there runs a deeply ethical thread in which the intention of an action is considered more important than the action itself. This was far from unique to Christian teaching, and the fact that it was adopted so naturally as part of the monastic behavior 
all demonstrates the debt owned by the early Christian church to classical and Jewish precursors. The most obvious example of continuity between pre-Christian and early Christian asceticism is the Essene sect in the first century Judaism. Josephus, the Romanized Jewish historian who lived uh, from 37 to around 100 uh, CE, left the most complete account of the Essenes and their practices. He described them as a dissident group of Jews who observed the teachings of Moses in particularly rigorous ways. They lived in communes in the Judean desert near the river Jordan. The location of the most famous witch is Qumran, and it's famous for the discovery of the so-called Dead Sea Scrolls. If you haven't heard of them, you can Google Dead Sea Scrolls and you'll find a lot of information about, about them. So these uh, Essenes, they devoted their lives to prayer, worship and simplicity of living. They eschewed marriage and sexual relations and maintained a strict bodily austerity that included dietary restrictions beyond the, the law of Moses. Whether Christian monks consciously modeled themselves on the Essenes, that's something highly debatable we can't really say uh, for sure, but there is clearly an influence. Austerity in personal behavior, in the form of chastity, sobriety and moderation in food and all aspects of outward behavior were standard ways in which religious groups of people would um, be identified, whether they were neoplatonic philosophers, whether they were following the cult of Mithras, Christians or Jews or Persian fire worshippers. Now it's uh, tempting to see this uh, mind-body relationship dichotomy as one uh, with uh, the body and its needs being suppressed or relegated to a secondary importance. There is a grain of truth, of course, that Christianity following its parent Judaism, or at least the mainstream Judaism, in regarding um, the soul as eternal in contrast to the mortal body. But despite the extremes of ascetic uh, behaviors that we encounter in the early monasticism, the purpose of fasting or eating very little was not to harm the body, but surprisingly, perhaps, to perfect it. Here we should uh, remember that the ideal state of humankind was considered to have been that in which uh, it had existed before the fall and the expulsion from uh, the Garden of Eden. As we said earlier, in the Garden, the earthly paradise, Adam and Eve had not uh, had to give thought to their bodily needs because they were provided all around them. The state of dependence uh, on nature carried with it an abundance that meant no work had to be done in order to feed and clothe uh, oneself. In fact, you didn't need any clothes as well. Now, in contrast, there could be no return to this earlier ideal paradise state of affairs because the fall was regarded um, from the fathers of the church. It was regarded as, a, as an historic event from which there would be no going back. The efforts of the grazers... So this is, uh, these are the monks who lived as foragers. To recapture something of this state of innocence represented an attempt by a few individuals to find some means of personally remaining as free from sin as possible. Not everyone obviously could follow this path. Another way of uh, trying to recapture innocence was to live in such a way as to make the body as angelic as possible. Taken literally, this entailed the perfection of the body by the least reliance possible on earthly things, including food. For this reason, the simplest foods were the best, and the body should not take in more than it was strictly necessary to support life. So eating too richly, or too much, or devoting a disproportionate amount of time and effort to what one ate, was potentially to pollute the body. Trying to achieve this angelic state of bodily existence was a matter of balance. To go too far in the direction of abstinence, to the extent that one disregarded the body and its needs altogether, was to despise God's uh, creation. It is significant that the region where bodily asceticism took on its most extreme forms, in Syria, uh, for example, was also the closest to and most influenced by the Persian Manichaean religion, which proposed a sharp bipolar split between mind and body. Mainstream Christian teaching rejected uh, such a split. One had to take one's body with one, not escape it or reject it altogether. So for this reason, although the ability to fast was a virtue, it would never be an end to itself. Another uh, Egyptian desert father, the Abba Pimin, known as the Shepherd, 
advised monks to fast not by refraining from food altogether for certain periods, but instead to eat only very little food daily. For him, complete fasting was ostentatious because it looked as though one were simply setting achievement tests for oneself. The ideal was to find the critical balance so that one took in just enough to keep the body functioning, but not enough to satisfy a craving for food. If that happened, one was giving in to bodily appetites rather than controlling them. John Cassian illustrates this in his account of a visit to Abba Serenus in Nitria, when he describes how the monk gave him and his companion to eat, in addition to bread, three olives, a few plums and figs, and a basket of dried peas. We took only five, says John, because it seemed wicked to take more. John Cassian was quite clear that excessive fasting was just as dangerous, spiritually speaking, as excessive eating. We should refresh ourselves at the proper time with food and sleep, even if we don't feel like it. The question of why certain foods were favoured and others were avoided offers a constant reminder of the monk's human limitations. It would be easy to see the history of monasticism in this way as a story of failure, or at least of disappointed hopes. Don't we all have them? The earliest monks appear, at least as we meet them in their sources, as heroes. The athletes, the top athletes of asceticism, with the spiritual strength and self-discipline to overcome their bodily needs and survive on the bare minimum of food. So contrast this, monks of uh, desert, of Nitria and Skeet, like Sabas and his um, fellow dwellers in the deserts of Palestine. The monk uh, Simeon the Stiliti, who lived in a column, and his uh, terrifying self-denial. And of course, all the other monks that lived in the forests of western France and the moors of, of northern England. Contrast all these people with the Benedictine monks of the later Middle Ages, which must appear to us soft and complacent, doing little but eating and drinking and devoting much of their time to thinking up ways of uh, dodging the hard rules set to them by, by the founding fathers. There is doubtless uh, some truth in this, and it's easier to be a monk in the 15th century England than in the 5th century Syria, of course. But the reason for this is not only because weaker, less heroic individuals became monks, and still less because uh, the church as an institution was in decline. Monasticism became an easier life because it had changed fundamentally in order to accommodate the needs of human society outside the monastery. What began as a rejection of society became an expression of the aspirations of that society. If monks could not entirely escape the outside world, that world came to realize that it needed the monks. It needed their learning and knowledge. It needed their employment and their production capabilities. And above all, it needed their spiritual protection. But in the needing of these things, the world also came to rely on precisely that feature of monasteries that appear to us as a mark of their failure to live up to their own ideals. Monasteries could only thrive if they could become powerful, self-sufficient organizations capable of feeding and clothing large communities and doing this successfully meant paying attention to the dimensions of human life that might seem far removed from their original purpose. It is difficult not to find the Desert Fathers impressive. Of course they were. Even if we cannot understand or empathize uh, with it, their determination to perfect themselves through neglecting uh, their bodily needs merits our admiration. Admiring the monks of several centuries later who enjoyed the same kind of feasts as uh, the rich outside their cloister, less, less so, more difficult to, to do. But in the end, there is a distance between us and the monks of the Golden Age that cannot be explained simply by the passing of uh, centuries. They were doubtless always monks in every age who observed rules about eating and fasting strictly and who were no less ascetic than the Desert Fathers. But the monks who thought up ways around the rule of Benedict so as to be able to eat meat sometimes, or who hid honey from their fellows, or who could not stand another day of eating bean stew, are in the end more familiar to us. The enjoying and taking an interest on what we eat is after all only human. So we see uh, from that, and um, as Christianity was developing of course, and um, the church thinking in general was dominated by the rule of Saint Benedict, which was formulated originally 
in Italy of the 5th century, which insisted monks should give up meat and alcohol and that their meals, taken only twice, at midday and in the evening between Vespers and Compline, should only contain two cooked dishes. Christianity brought uh, with it the concept of uh, gluttony as a sin and of abstinence and fasting as a symbolic assertions of faith. Lenten fasting became law at the Council of Aix in 837. Charlemagne was determined to see that it was observed by force if necessary. Any baptized Lombard or Saxon chieftain who failed to do proper penance had his head cut off. And a rather uninviting prospect which considerably slowed down the rate of conversions to Christianity. With this um, um, concept of gluttony as a sin and, uh, and abstinence and fasting as a symbolic accessions of faith, the monks generally predominantly were surviving on a poor man's diet of bread, seasonal fruits, vegetables and herbs. So monks took pride on their own gardens, on their own productive gardening in monasteries. And um, monasteries themselves expanded. So as they, as they expanded, they expanded horticulture as well. So they had fine herbs and aromatics were grown for medicinal as much as culinary use, together with garlic, leeks, onions, which took the place of the vegetable enclosure. They also had orchards with plums, pears, medlars, quinces, mulberries, uh, walnuts, which uh, there were a new introduction in, in uh, England, taking the name from uh, Welch, meaning uh, foreign lands, and all these were improved by grafting. Elfric also listed astonishingly the pitch, and by doomsday there were as many as 30 vineyards in uh, South England, and the monastery of Eli was um, so rich in them that it was known as the Ile de Vins. Saint Benedict ruled that only the sick could indulge in the flesh of quadrupeds. But the monks were quick to think and interpret this as excluding birds and fish. So fish ponds, known as stews, and ornamental dovecotes for pigeons, known as stock doves, gained currency in monastery grounds, each providing a constant supply of uh, allowable flesh. As Christianity spread in England and Northern Europe in general, fasting also began to form part of the culinary rhythm of every, every week, observed by rich and poor alike on Fridays, in memory for the crucifixion, Wednesdays, the day Judas pocketed his bag of silver, and Saturdays, the Sabbath Eve. Around 1009 AD, according to Ethelred, it was the law to fast on bread, herbs and water for the three days before Michaelmas, the eaves of every significant saint's day, and all of the Advent and Lent, days on which every household was expected to abstain not only from meat, but from other animal products, including dairy. Unless you were excused from fasting by virtue of your health, the reality was that the religion ensured that meat was off the menu for a significant portion of the year. So far, so similar to the Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox Church's uh, Lent. What happened next in England? Henry's dissolution of the monasteries and the rift with Rome would bring about one of the most cataclysmic transformations in the diet of all classes, forever altering the British relation with fish as well. Picture this. In 1536, there were more than 800 religious institutions in Britain. Within five years, there were none. The dissolution changed at a stroke the way the countryside looked and the rules according to which people ate. The monks, their masses and their fish ponds disappeared. In 1541, Henry proclaimed that eggs, cheese and milk could all now be included in the fast diets. Total lentil abstinence was abandoned and the number of holy days was reduced by around three quarters. At some point, a middle ground was reached. Fast days were maintained by law in order to protect the fishing industry, and most people ate fish on Fridays and Saturdays. But attitudes to fish were shifting, and also importantly, the status of butter and cream over olive oil and almond milk began to soar. So you see here um, how this uh, shift between the way we think Lent in uh, the Orthodox Church and the way Lent happens in UK has, uh, has uh, started. And here in UK now, you give up something for Lent. You don't have to fast uh, with everything as you do in the Orthodox Church. But yeah, you give up something, which are both very legitimate and equally fine ways to do your fasting. 
and your penance. Today, nowadays, we have a modern uh, way of fasting, and it's uh, our fear of getting uh, fat and um, and basically um, getting more healthy. <laughs> so instead of uh, uh, having butter or, or olive oil, we have all these uh, weird uh, reduced fat, um, spreadable things, concoctions that I find actually appalling, uh, disgusting, uh, unappealing, and um, the other weird things like the caffeinated coffee. What the hell, guys? Uh, and apparently this is progress. <laughs> so fasting might be a thing of the past, but we have to reinvent it somehow. It's not about uh, the fear of the last judgment. It's the fear of our uh, cholesterol and, uh, <laughs> and our uh, heart disease and so on. I've got another uh, monk's recipe for you. Uh, Hawthorne porridge. Gather as many hawthorn blossoms as you can. Ideally, you should have about two handfuls for a good hermit's serving. Crush the petals in a mortar until you have a thickish paste. In a small saucepan, gently heat half a pint of milk and stir in the hawthorn paste. Tear or grate two slices of stale bread into pieces and stir gently into the milk. Let it cook until the bread has amalgamated with the milk to thicken it to a porridge-like consistency. Um, so generally, obviously every monastery and every skit and every different monk had their own rules and schedules and ways of eating and how they eat. But as a general rule, the main meal was to comprise two cooked dishes with the addition of fresh vegetables and fruits as a third. In medieval accounts, there are usually this referred to as pulses or pottage, so a soup flavoured with vegetables and herbs and sometimes thickened with oatmeal or barley or frumenty. The two dishes were probably originally intended as alternatives, but became instead two courses. We know that this is uh, the case by about 1100 CE, but in all likelihood the change occurred long before that. On days when an evening meal was allowed, one third of this was supposed to be served then, which probably means that the meal itself was a cold snack. Bread was provided in addition to the cooked dishes. And this is um, in um, the Benedict monasteries in Northern Europe. In the Byzantine world, however, the regulation of food was different. Here there was no standard formula such as the rule of, of Benedict. Since founders were responsible for regulating monasteries, there could be as many different rules as there were monasteries. From the 9th century onward, an increasing number of typica, typica is the rules to be followed for daily life from the monks, so yeah, from the 9th century onward, an increasing number of typica survives uh, from monasteries in the Byzantine Empire. Some prescribe food to be eaten in precise detail. The basic diet comprised bread, boiled green vegetables, pulses such as lentils and beans, cheese and eggs. Some fish was also eaten when available, usually in the form of a soup. Fresh fruit in season and dried fruit out of season were taken as a dessert. The beans, lentils or chickpeas were usually made into a thick stew, flavoured with herbs or root vegetables, such as onion and leek, and dressed with oil. This is basically the same as the Egyptian dish of uh, full mendames nowadays, and many, 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 many stews and soups of uh, the Levant, Middle East, Greece and Turkey and the Balkans that we eat today. So this could be made as a thick soup or a stew, depending, depending on, the, on the amount of and type of pulses used, and it formed the standard monastic dish throughout the Greek Orthodox world in the Middle Ages. Sometimes the soup uh, of stewed onions and herbs was poured over bread. Some Greek Orthodox monastic typica prescribed exact amounts of food for each monk as well. A monastery founded on the Black Mountain near Antioch, uh, modern-day North Syria, North uh, East West Syria, in the 11th century, give us a good example of that. A measure of rice and one of boiled lentils, beans or chickpeas, was to be served to each monk daily. The measure being the equivalent of a serving of wine. These particular rules from this monastery distinguished between cooking the pulses as a stew or in a soup, because in the latter, the proportion of beans to water was less. If the pulses were cooked in the form of a soup, only half a measure was to be used. This might 
mean that half a measure could be used for the second meal of the day in some other form. Each monk also had the right to a daily heaped serving of olives, a level serving of resins, and a portion of figs and six nuts. When fresh fruit was available, this system of measures was abandoned for this, for the fresh fruit. Besides these regulations, <laughs> with regard to quantity, the author of the Typicon Nikos also specified what kinds of food were to be eaten each day. On Tuesday and Thursday, the menu was soup, vegetables, boiled but not dressed with olive oil, and cheese, eggs and fish if available. These were the days of plenty. Mondays were restricted to a single vegetable dish without oil, and a dish of dry food such as bread and dried fruit. On Sundays, dishes at both meals were prepared with olive oil. This was the rule until Lent. After the second week of Lent, however, no cooked food at all was allowed to be prepared on weekdays, and the monks had to be content with bread, fruit, olives, and whatever vegetables or herbs could be eaten raw. Those Byzantine monastic typica that expressed an interest in food were particularly concerned that Lenten observances should be clearly specified. Indeed, it is from the Lenten food that we get our clearest picture of how Orthodox monks ate. At the 11th century Constantinopolitan monastery of Theotokos Evergetis, for instance, we know that during most of the year, breakfast and lunch were the main meals, and that supper, which comprised only bread, a little wine and a small fruit, was optional. For Lent, however, we have a much fuller picture of the meals. On the Monday of the first week in Lent, total abstinence was observed. The monks were to eat nothing at all. Between Tuesday and Friday of the first week, monks ate boiled lentils or beans, accompanied only by raw vegetables. On Friday, two cooked dishes were prepared, but without the use of olive oil, either in the cooking or as dressing. On Saturday and Sunday, the two cooked dishes could be dressed with oil. During the rest of the Lent, every Wednesday, the monks could eat the same as the weekends. But on Tuesdays and Thursdays, olive oil was permitted in only one of the cooked dishes. On Mondays and Fridays, the only food available was plain boiled beans, small fruit and water. On Good Friday, only uncooked food was permissible. And there you go. There you have it. This is a very incomplete... Um, analysis of uh, what uh, the earliest monks and the fathers of the church um, ate, and a very quick view of how our Lent and uh, diet, our Christian diet, uh, has evolved throughout uh, the first uh, 500 years, 600 years of um, Christianity's existence. I hope that was of interest to you, and I hope it kind of inspired you in terms of um, how you see diet and fasting and Lent and what we eat today, and, and how we see our body and soul connected or not, in some cases. Thank you for listening, and um, for the Patreon backers, I've got an extra bit of uh, a couple of um, recipes coming up, which is an Orthodox monk stew and a pottage, which um, I hope you will enjoy. Orthodox monk stew. Allow about 35 grams of dried chickpeas per monk. Prepare chickpeas by soaking them in cold water for 8 hours or overnight. If you are using them dried, change the water and bring the chickpeas to the boil over 100 degrees. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. If you want to find out more about um, ancient recipes, unknown ingredients and long-lost foods from our past, go to my Patreon page and uh, sign up from $3 per month. There you'll find a wealth of uh, articles, recipes and musings about uh, uh, ancient and medieval and um, all sorts of recipes from our distant and not so distant past. Many thanks to all my Patreon bankers so far. You keep uh, this podcast going. If you want to help, you can um, either make one of donations on Acast or sign on my Patreon uh, to be one of my patrons. And at the moment there are 40 episodes uploaded with extra material there and also a wealth of recipes and articles, around 120 in total. Remember to share this podcast with three friends of yours. 
that will help her grow and make it more well known. Please leave a review and rate in um, any platform that you're using Spotify, Acast, um, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and so on. It really, really helps with, um, with making this podcast more well known out there. Over and out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 